What's up, guys? It's Liat and Casey, and we are so excited to tell you that the Winter Collective is open for sign up. In fact, if you sign up now, it's like you really have your shit together and you could take advantage of the early bird sign up. Guys, the Winter Collective, it starts November 16th and runs until January 20th, 10 weeks with your girls meeting twice a week, Monday and Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We have options that if that does not work for you or you can only make some of them, you can get the video bundle, which has all the recordings. And we have mock exam package. We have homework included. It is up to you. you whatever your cup of tea is, um, we've got you covered. And the early birds, $50 off, is going to run through October 31st. So sign up, save yourself some 50 bucks. What's included in the collective? Oh, well, everything you ever needed to pass the effing test. This is for you. If you are bored by reading a boring book, we unborify it for you and make you love your Cooper book. So go to studynotesaba.com, sign up and use coupon code EARLYAF to get $50 off the collective. Hope to see you there and take you on the ride of your life. Love you. Mean it. Study notes, ABA. ABA in a little X rated away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. And oh my god, we're here with episode 70. Casey. I'm nervous what you're going to say as the rhyme for today. I hope I nixed the one that you were thinking of using. Okay, episode 70, what do you have for us? No, you did not punish my behavior. Okay, episode 70. After this episode, you will know how to say yes or no. Good job, Casey. That was great. Thank you. I can't believe it's episode 70. That's kind of gnarly and crazy and amazing. Seriously. I yeah. mean... I didn't think we'd make it to episode seven. So here we are. <laughs> and I we're think once still in like heaven. A, yeah. Once you get something into a habit and like the behaviors in your repertoire, I feel like it comes a lot easier for us now than it used to. Oh, yeah. It definitely does. I still get really sweaty palms, though, like the 45 minutes before and during. Oh, that's good. Okay. So that'd be some respondent behavior. Yeah. A little uh, physiological reactions here to some nervousness for sure. I like that. All right, guys. Today's episode, we have someone really, really cool and covering something that a lot of you guys have asked us to cover. You guys send us questions all the time. You always are asking, what do I need to know about this and that? And I tried building that up for you, but Casey's going to tell you all about our guest today. I sure am. That's my job. I do that like, you know, professional introduction. But we cannot start an episode without reading the review of the day. All right. This one came in from Shell Girl Essay. Everything a BCBA should be. And then it's dot, dot, dot. And Apple, figure out how I can read all the titles because I don't know. Five stars. Leah and Casey, your hands down. Amazing. I'm sure they hear this all the time. Guys, it never gets old. Actually, I know they do, but I'm sure they don't mind hearing it again. Even though I've never met them in person, they are the BCBA role models I needed in my life. They break down the walls of what is typical and show what it means to be human and professionals in the field. 
They talk about so many amazing different topics and how it relates to the field of ABA. They are truly generalizing those technical terms to everyday life in an easy and understandable way. They have sparked a new fire within me to continue trucking along until I pass the big exam, helping me realize the endless possibilities that the magical field of ABA can do to essentially change the world. Really, you ladies are fantastic and are really making a difference. Heart, heart, heart. Oh, thank you. That was actually oh my gosh. super heart, heartfelt. Heart, fire emoji, heart, heart, <laughs> high five emoji, pounded emoji. That is really awesome. Thank you for taking the time to write such an amazing review. And yeah, by the way, hashtag never satiated. Keep them coming, guys. You know where to send the reviews. Five stars will do. I won't be mad, I swear. Okay. Now back to today's episode. We have, like Liat said, someone very, very cool. Um, we've probably been talking and planning, trying to get this on the books for probably four months, I think, definitely. So it's finally happening. So we have um, Dr. Darren Sush. I hope I got that right. He's a graduate of the American School of Professional Psychology um, in Washington, D.C. He has a doctorate in clinical psychology and a master's degree in psychology from American University. Um, Dr. Darren has received superior training and education to help identify and treat individuals in need of support, guidance, and therapeutic services. So he's not only a licensed clinical psychologist, he is a BCBA. Um, and he has provided therapy for individuals with um, adults and children, couples and groups within community mental health centers, private practices and inpatient psychological facilities. He has helped people from all walks of life with all levels of psychological needs to meet their full potential and experience healthy and satisfying lives. I love this. He also published a book, which we're going to talk about today. It's an ethics workbook um, alongside um, his co-author, Adele uh, Nadowski. And we know it is an impossible for us to encounter every single ethical scenario or dilemma that may be out there. But this workbook, it's called a workbook of ethical case scenarios and applied behavior analysis presents over 85 real world case scenarios commonly faced by individuals practicing a B a it is worth it. Uh, we have a copy. We use it with our students too. Um, so welcome to the show, Dr. Darren. Hi, thanks for having me. So excited to have you. Okay, before we get nerdy, I need to ask you. So you went to school in D.C. Yep. You spent right. some time there. I love D.C. I lived there for a little while, too, because I went to University of Maryland. Oh, awesome. And then yeah, I no, lived DC in D.C. I was an Adams Morgan girl, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that, I guess that not mean, really that means, time, but I lived from D.C., you know what that means. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Thank you again for coming on. And I do think actually, Casey, it was longer than four months because if we were talking to him right when the COVID restriction had started, people hadn't even started telehealth yet. And yeah. we were, I mean, we had already talked about doing that on an episode, but then, you know, life got in the way like COVID and 2020 and every other crazy thing that happened along the way in 2020, like Kanye peeing on all his new Grammy awards, which was weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> side note, but I'm really excited to have you here to talk about ethics because this is a topic that we have so many people reach out to us about. And it's definitely something that I find more difficult to teach in a creative way as we do at Study Notes ABA because, you know, ethics is also a, a lot of rules, but also you need to be able to be flexible with those rules to understand how they apply or generalize to different situations. So again, really excited. So Darren, can you um, 
tell us a little bit more about yourself? Because I know that I read that bio that I stole from your website, admittedly. <laughs> um, but tell us a little bit more about who you are. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I thought that sounded familiar. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So as you mentioned, yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a licensed clinical, clinical psychologist, also a BCBAD. Um, so I've been working in the field for, of ABA for about 15 years or so, working with adults and individuals with uh, mostly autism, but also other developmental disabilities uh, and behavioral challenges. And um, right now, uh, I am the clinical program senior manager at Cigna. Um, so I lead the psychologist, ABA, and autism reviewer teams there. Um, I guess it's important to mention I'm not representing Cigna on, on this podcast, although I, I do work for them, but, um, but I'm not Good here as kind of the, the Cigna rep uh, on, the, on the podcast. But, um, so that's, that's one of the things I do. I also teach. Uh, I teach mainly, mainly ethics in, in ABA as well as uh, some of the foundational courses um, to, uh, in, in MA and, and doctoral programs. And, uh, yeah, so thanks. I appreciate uh, appreciate you all having me on on the on podcast today. Absolutely. So you teach ethics at a university level. Now, are these like the like newer students in the field? Are they about to graduate? What is like what kind of like classes do you have? Yeah. So good. Great. So most of the time, I think that the the ethics course has been towards the beginning of uh, of the programs. I've actually been, uh, I think, the first class that a lot of students have had, and I've always wondered, is that really a good idea or not, that I'm, I'm the introduction to the school? But <laughs> uh, yeah, most, most of the students um, that I've worked with, this has been kind of like their first semester, maybe their second coming in when they start to have to take that ethics class, um, which, is, which is nice because it gives a nice, uh, a nice framework for a lot, of the, a lot of the information, a lot of the stuff that they'll be encountering either within the rest of their coursework or just in the field as they start to join different agencies or practicum experiences, they have a little bit more of a heads up of, of what to look into and what to keep an eye out for. Um, one of the cool things though is, is that I've noticed, especially more recently, is that uh, it used to be a lot of the students that I had, they worked in the field. So they'd been working in the field as either a one-to-one -one or an RBT or just you know paraprofessional. Uh, and then because they, they caught the bug, they wanted to gain that, that educational experience work or that BCBA. Um, but more recently, I've, I've had a lot of students who, you know, just found out about ABA, found out about the field and just became interested. They didn't they don't necessarily have uh, that that experience of, of working with an individual who, who maybe gets the supportive services um, and they, they just want to learn more. So it's a nice mix uh, these days with with the students that we have. So do you see, though, with the students that do have the experience that are RBTs or paraprofessionals that they are like coming you with like every single ethical situation ever? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. So, so we try to. I try to start each each class with just before getting into content or every, anything, just with kind of open discussion. Hey, what's what's the the hot topic for the day? The, the hot topic. But um, <laughs> and just 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 to talk about it. Did anything come up for you? Any questions that came up? Uh, any any anybody read any articles or anything like that 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 really made them kind of question what's what we're doing within the field or or how we can improve. Um, but, but I get that a lot actually from the students who are working directly in the field. So they'll say, oh, this happened and my supervisor and I were chatting about this. Um, but then also from those who are just working kind of as, as civilians within the real world and they'll say, but, you know, this was happening in my work. Can we apply this there as well? And, and that's kind of the cool thing is you get to think mm -hmm. about behavior analysis, not just in kind of the human service industry of, uh, and the clinical sense, but also just applied to the behaviors that individuals engage in. And that's the, the beauty of applied behavior analysis, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. There's so much that we can do with our field, with our science. And, and oftentimes we, we feel kind of stuck, but there really is so much more that we have the possibility to, to participate in. I totally. I mean, the amount of people we've had on the podcast who have just even opened my eyes to the different things you could do with ABA is really exciting, but also it's, it's kind of um, an unpaved path to take. And so these different ethical scenarios come up that, you know, you, you didn't, I mean, everything, I mean, even COVID, no one obviously planned for this. And so a lot of different ethical questions came up or, you know, you're starting something new, whether you're starting test prep, you know, there's different ethical questions we had to look into. Um, or, you know, as the field develops more and more, there's just so many questions. And I think it's really important that we are able to kind of come to a conclusion together. Cause sometimes when students ask me, I don't know the exact answer either. So like, we'll we'll try put our heads together and be like, well, wouldn't it be this? Or, I mean, I guess it would be that to, you know, this code or that code. And it's just, yes, we see a lot of questions with ethics in general. So can you tell us about your job at Cigna? What do you do as, cause I've definitely been the, the BCBA calling on the other line, calling Cigna or Blue Cross Blue Shield talking to someone on the other end of the phone and that is you, right? Uh, potentially. So, so one of the things that I, that I do um, within my role at Cigna is I am one of the, one of the peer reviewers. Um, so exactly. So when, when someone calls up requesting an authorization for services, they want to start or continue services for an individual. Um, they typically will send in a request, uh, how much, how much time they want to, they want to work, how much intent, the intensity of services that they want to provide. Usually they'll send in some type of treatment plan with, with their goals. Um, so I'm one of the people amongst a couple others who would re review that, um, and potentially have a conversation with you as a provider about, about whether or not, you know, what the clinical rationale is related behind the request that you're making it and kind of how to move forward. Um, you know, one of the things that that's always interesting, I, I like about my job, which is really awesome, is that I get to talk to behavior analysts all over the country. Um, you know, I, I didn't realize kind of how much of an island I was on working. You know, I worked with a number of different professionals and you go to conferences and you get to hear a whole bunch of people talk and meet and network and do all the things. One of the really cool things about what I get to do is I get to speak with professionals from everywhere and learn about how people are practicing behavior analysis and learn about the consistencies and, and, and the inconsistencies uh, in the field. Um, so that's that's one of the really fun and interesting things. And, and one of the reasons that really drew me to the position, um, one of the other reasons I, I got into it was because I remember being the provider on those calls, you know, when when insurance mandates started to come in and the funding for, for ABA services, particularly with kids with autism, became available. And I would talk to someone and it, I, I just, they didn't seem like they knew what I was talking about, or they didn't know, they didn't know autism, right? And that's really what we were talking about, autism spectrum disorder. And they certainly didn't feel like they knew ABA and, and what we do within our field. Um, so when the position became an opportunity for me, it was, it was really about having a seat at the table. So making sure that we had representation as a field uh, in the decisions that are being made about the services that we provide. That's huge. Cause I mean, I've, been, you know, putting through an authorization before, and then you speak to the person on the other line at the insurance agency, and they might be like a, maybe a pediatrician or mm -hmm. some other MD, 
and it, it is different ABA. You know, you're not asking for one hour of services like you would another doctor right. appointment. And right. so kind of trying to explain that is, uh, I always found that very difficult because they're looking at, you know, medical treatment very differently. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, I remember being on calls with, you know, I hate to keep saying MDs, but you know, a lot of the calls that I was on were, were with, with MDs and pediatricians and, and those that really didn't get what ABA is and how we practice. And the, the suggestions were, well, can't you just tell them, can't you just tell them to stop? Have you tried that? Like, no, I think oh, we, we tried that. We tried that a couple of years back. We're, we, we'd be, we're beyond just asking him to stop doing these things or, well, if you're working with him, when is he supposed to just kind of play and be a kid? And I was like, well, you know, that's kind of what we do is we, we help them to develop those skills so they can, you know, build their build their interests in an appropriate way that's actually helping them to build a meaningful life. So when they are playing, they're enjoying it. And and maybe even icing on the cake, having that kind of opportunities for social reinforcement within their play. That's so beautiful awesome. what you just said. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have one serious question, and this is I always wondered when I was practicing clinically. So let's say I have a, a new client, right? I do an assessment on them. I get a day to do an assessment, mm-hmm. maybe two. And you're supposed to have graphs in there already of like baseline data. How are people getting this baseline data to present to you like a, a, a vast amount of it when like, are you ever thinking that's weird? Because like they have two days to do an assessment. How are they getting all this data? Like I always had a a problem <laughs> yeah. with that. I'm like, okay, like what graph do I have to show? Like I saw them once. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a, it's a good question. I, and you know, rightfully so or not, I can speak for me, I guess, you know, I, I can't speak for all the reviewers, even, even all the, but, or, and certainly definitely don't want to speak for all the funding sources and insurance companies and things like that. Cause Things are different, obviously. I, I hear, you know, three times a day how, oh my gosh, you all do it so much differently than everyone else, and that's crazy frustrating. And 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 really, you know, as a provider, that's that's got to be hair pulling. But um, I, for me, I think I always err on the side of providers telling the truth because I, I think I have to. I have to go with that understanding that number one, you're there to advocate for the individual, and that's what you're trying to do. Number two, you're trying to make clinically appropriate decisions based on the information that you're able to gather so far. And, and three, that the information you're providing me is, is truthful, accurately collected, and, and helping you to demonstrate what you think is going to be clinically most appropriate for this person, right? And, and I think I have to go that way because the alternative is just, it's, it doesn't let me do my job effectively. And then it's going to be, in reality, it'll be a hindrance to, to, the, to the client or the customer more so than anybody else. And so they're the ones that are going to get beat. So, so with that, you know, that doesn't say that I just kind of accept everything. I might ask questions about it to say, you know, how did you gather this information? Um, but maybe more so, how do you plan to continue to gather this information? Because right. a lot of things within behavior analysis and a lot of what we do, you know, we still kind of keep it, no matter what data we collect or, you know, how much, how much we record or, or how long our treatment plan is, you know, it could be 100 pages is still kind of in that hypothesis realm, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I feel like the the, behavior, the function of this behavior is X, Y, and Z, but then you continue to gather more and more information, right? This philosophic doubt of it all, right? So you continue to gather more and more information that either supports your understanding and is going to strengthen your 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 clinical interventions or give you the, the, the idea that you need to kind of shift focus based on the, uh, the progress of the individual. So, you know, when I see all that, you know, all that great, you know, charts and graphs and data, um, you know, 
I don't auto- automatically kind of think, ooh, this sounds, you know, this is suspicious. Um, something doesn't look right here, but I might ask about it. Same thing the other way around. If there's nothing there, I might ask, well, what's, what's, how, have you met this person yet? How, what, what helped you to kind of develop these goals or, or this plan of action for this person to give you the indication, this is really what we need to focus and this is going to be to the benefit or the, the best thing that I can do right now for this person. I, and I also wanted to ask that because I think as a, a new BCBA um, or anyone listening who is a new BCBA, or even if you're not, I think it's kind of unspoken some things. Like I assumed everyone knew how to make this graph beforehand. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, like, how are they collecting this data before? Why can't I figure out like enough stuff to put here? Like I've, I've done a BB map on this kid. I could do this, but like, I don't have like <laughs> two months of data or whatever it was, even a week, you know, like your, your time is so limited and I can't possibly put every goal I'm going to want to work with this individual on as I met them for so short. Mm-hmm. And I guess you always assume that everyone else knows what they're doing for that. But oh, totally. You know, you know, you know, there's one of the things that I talk about in, in my ethics classes. I talk about, I mean, that imposter syndrome. And I know you all have done a lot of talks about this too, is that that feeling as though everyone else knows the answer and there's something wrong with me if I don't. Well, that might lead to some pretty problematic behaviors, right? So if you feel like everyone's supposed to know it and you quote unquote should too, then you don't ask questions, right? Or maybe you, you get a little, little sly with the information that you put in because you feel like you should have that anyway. And then you're basing your clinical decision-making on maybe some inaccurate stuff. Um, so, but, but that a lot of that comes from just feeling uneasy or feeling like you're maybe doing the wrong thing or you, you, you know, you should be better than you are. Um, you, you know, and I think that's definitely, I would, I would imagine at least that's definitely true for brand new BCBAs. You know, you get those, you get those letters after your name and all of a sudden you're given a, a handful of new responsibilities and you're supposed to know what to do with all that, um, which isn't always the case, but even for, you know, you know, seasoned BCBAs, BCBADs, you have to feel comfortable saying, hey, let me look into that. That's something that's a good question. Let me go and get, get you some better information or, or let me see if I can, uh, you know, get some, some consultation and some support to, to make sure that we're all on the right page here. Okay, good to know. So if you're, if you're thinking that, guys, you're not alone. I thought it too. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people did too. I remember being like, Oh my God, I don't know how to score all the T scores and Z scores of a Vineland. I better figure this out. And then I realized like, once I actually said it openly, it was like, we are the only clinic who is not getting the scoring system. (laughs) Like, (laughs) but you just got to talk about it. All right. So we definitely have a lot of questions for you. And some that pertain to now in terms of ethics, what we see going on a lot. And we asked you some hot topics that are going on. And one of the first questions we had was about telehealth. Telehealth right now is hot as in many places, it's the only kind of services that can be provided or, you know, they have taken a lot of clients out of the clinic or, you know, families have opted for it being home and they have one provide one RBT to one family and things are very different and people have to learn a lot of, or kind of learning as they're going. And so I just wanted to ask what are the most, you know, common ethical dilemmas you've seen people asking or coming into contact with, with either COVID and telehealth? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, 
you know, I guess some of it comes up obviously with within my role as a reviewer because you know when people are providing certain types of services, then they have to talk about what they plan to do with that individual more so in the future. But you know, in my classes or even just kind of speaking with friends who are in the field or you know on the different social media pages, I mean, that seems like something that everyone's kind of talking about. How are we going to do this? How do we do it in in the right way? Um, you know, and how do we make sure that that we're kind of still meeting our goals or serving our purpose as a field in this, in this way that, that it, that's different, right? So we're all used to kind of being, you know, one-to-one -one or, you know, face-to-face -face with the individuals and providing our services. And that's hard enough. Uh, and then you factor in, you know, slow internet speeds and, you know, trying to run away and, and doing all this, all these other things to kind of make sure that you're still going to be build up and, and maintain that rapport and clinical effectiveness. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. And, and, you know, one of the things I think I'm thankful for is I don't do that that much anymore. So <laughs> I didn't, I, for me, I don't have to think about how to make it work because I really, you know, yeah. uh, put my, my hat out to the people who have, have really adjusted so much with everything that's been going on. And, you know, it would have been very easy for our field to kind of say, well, I guess we need to pause, um, you know, or we just need to, we just need to keep doing it as we're doing it and just take the risk. Um, but I think that there was some amazing people in our field who said, not only are we going to um, gain an understanding of how to implement these services in this different way, um, but we're going to conduct research related to it, and we're going to we're going to take data and we're going to pu publish that data. So that way, we're either going to continue this way in the future when hopefully we don't need to, or we'll be better prepared for it the next time. Which is it's a big part of what behavior analysis is anyway. Um, so you know, for me, one of the biggest things that comes up, and maybe this is because, like I mentioned, I, I don't know if I be good at it because I'm just not super practiced in conducting work in this fashion would be competence, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I know Matt Broad has does a whole bunch of uh, work and published a bunch in, in this area. So, you know, mm -hmm. looking up what it means to be a competent behavioral analyst or a competent practitioner um, would be a really good idea. But, you know, thinking about it's not the same, you know, mm -hmm. and just assuming just behavior is behavior and, you know, apply behavior analysis is apply behavior analysis no matter what. Um, that could really set you up for some from for some challenges. Hopefully, it doesn't, and maybe you know eight times out of ten you'll be fine no matter what. But you know, preparing and being and making sure that you understand the skill sets that are necessary. Talk to people who have worked within this within this realm before. Get a bunch of your friends who are also behavior analysts who have the same questions and say, "Oh crap! How do we how do we do this? What are some things that work for you? What are some things that really kind of exploded in your face?" And and gaining the skill set to to effectively work within this this weird realm that we find ourselves in now. That's probably first and foremost mm -hmm. um, before you start just trying to go gung ho with it. I mean, it's great to provide services, and hopefully those services are effective. But you want to you want to go with it with some knowledge. Oh, my question is, you know, and I can't quote ethical codes, maybe you can, but <laughs> you know, the right to effective treatment. Mm -hmm. And like, I would imagine that's become a problem too, because, you know, ABA, there's, I think a lot of ABA is hands-on, you know, being able to, you know, uh, like detect precursor behaviors or, you know, do an antecedent to block something before it happens or, um, you know, change the environment, manipulate it. it. Has there been a lot of ethical concerns with the effectiveness, especially when you're working with more severe disabilities or, 
uh, or more severe behaviors, not necessarily, sorry, mm-hmm. not severe disabilities. I meant more severe behaviors. Have there been ethical concerns about the, the quality and the effectiveness of the interventions? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would imagine there would. And, and, you know, again, from talking with people and kind of hearing some of the challenges with kind of adapting, I don't want to say adapting ABA, but kind of implementing ABA through this through this new medium or this new to many people medium, because there's people who've been working in telehealth for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's the, that's the question to ask is, am I the right person to provide this service given everything that I know and how I, and how I practice and, and what I can kind of learn as I'm going or, or learn in preparation? And then two, is this individual going to be appropriate and benefit from this service? Because, you know, that's, that's such a hard question, I think, to answer, and it shouldn't be an easy question, but to say these services are beneficial, but is this going to be beneficial to this person? right now, given the way in, in which it needs to be practiced. Um, because then that leads to kind of the next decision making on the decision tree of, well, if not, then what do I do about it? Right. And that might be what other supportive services that maybe they're not behavior, behavior analytic, but what other supportive services can we have in place, even if it's just a cushion? Um, what other services can I provide? Right. Maybe parent caregiver training, but, you know, really, really heavy hitting on, on, on that or, you know, depending, I guess, on where you live and safety protocols and things like that, do we need to, you know, is it appropriate to do uh, in-service or in-person sessions? Because that, you know, depending on the individual you work with, that might be the best call. What would be the risk if we have to take a break from services? Um, You know, that's, that's a really hard question to answer because it might mean some regression. It might mean some, some dangerousness, but based on that risk versus the benefit, you know, if you're not thinking about it, you won't, you're definitely not going to come up with an answer. And those are hard questions you need to ask. And it's really, I think a lot of people don't want to ask those questions and either power through or provide, you know, kind of shitty treatments or, you know, I don't know. I've just seen a lot of different reactions from students, whether it's like, we shouldn't have to work because of COVID. It's not safe to, um, you know, being like, I'll do anything for these clients because they need it. And it's just such like a, I see both sides of it. Right. I'm like, I get it. Uh, but like, yeah, you're lucky you have a job. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I want to back up a little bit. So, and I have this question. So you're a clinical psychologist and I, I think I heard that you do talk therapy. You're also a BCBA. So, how do you wear both those hats? How do they go together? You have two different ethical codes you need to follow. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, oh, I love talking about this. Yeah, this is great. So, you know, one of the things that's kind of that it, it's a challenge, but it's it's a fun challenge. And and fortunately, I think kind of my my education and my background, you know, it's I'm a clinical psychologist and a behavior analyst. So those two things really don't divert too much into the where it's where it's where it's, you know, too difficult not to, and I, and I can't integrate them in, in too much of a degree. Um, but there's certainly different ways of approaching, you know, even kind of how you talk about feelings and, and emotions and thoughts and, and how you might, how you might approach that for maybe more of a radical behaviorism perspective versus as a clinical psychologist, you have a little bit more leeway and, oh, that made you happy. Good. Um, <laughs> and you can kind of go on, go on from there. Uh, you know, Fortunately, and, and there are two different ethics codes, right? There's the APA ethics code, American Psychological Association, and then we have our uh, code of conduct uh, as behavior analysts. Um, fortunately, also, they're pretty similar. You know, the, the APA code has been around for a real long time, and, and a lot of the ACV code comes from that code. And, and areas that aren't covered by the, the ACV code 
we kind of divert to the APA code to, to see, hey, is this covered here? Mm -hmm. um, but one of the nice things that our code does do is it, it, send, it spends a lot more area of the code kind of defining what it means to be a behavior analyst, defining what it means to work in the role of a behavior analyst. And part of that is so you don't kind of muddy the science and so you don't muddy the field, right? We've only been around, you know, we've been around for 60 some odd, some odd years and, you know, some people know what we do, some people don't, but the more that you kind of integrate it with other fields, the, certainly the less of an impression that they'll have of what it means to do behavior analytic work, um, which is I think why in the code it's so strongly put that when you're working as a behavior analyst, you work as a behavior analyst. If you have another credential, you kind of need to take it upon yourself to make sure that you're stating I'm working from my other credential right now. And, and I, I'm sure we see this, but there's a lot of speech and language pathologists who are also behavior analysts. So, you know, I would think they, they probably have to do that as well, kind of, especially when there's not kind of a behavioral way of describing the strategy that you're utilizing. Um, but that's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's wearing two hats, but they, the hats are, are pretty similar. Um, so when I'm, when I'm working as a quote, just a clinical psychologist and kind of like talk therapy, um, I will very, very clearly mention, well, as a, as a behavior analyst also, I, you know, I, I do this and this is the type of work that I do and, you know, I'm a whole person. I can't kind of, you know, mm -hmm. cut myself off and not think in that way, but the strategies that I'm using here are really more um, cognitive behavioral in nature or uh, really more, more talk based in talk therapy. And that, you know, for me, some, a lot of times the client that I'd be working with would be like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't care. Um, <laughs> just means, help me. That, that means nothing to me. I just wanted to talk about what was bothering me today. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, for me, it's it's also you know, I, I I want them. You know, if they continue to work with me or they go and work with somebody else, you know, being able to tie in on what was working for them and to say, okay, these are the strategies that have really been helpful. And if they want to learn more about it, I want them to be pointed in the right direction for that. I love. I love how you just said that. Like, I'm a whole person. Right. You can't yeah. just separate and be like, oh, today I'm just this and tomorrow I'm just this. And well, I was going to say, do you have like a clear SD? Like, OK, I'm wearing I'm wearing a clicker around my neck. Now I'm a behavior <laughs> analyst. All right. I, you're laying on. There's a couch in the room now. <laughs> now we're in psychologist mode. <laughs> I should get a couch when I'm wearing elbow patches. I'm a, I'm the psychologist and one of my but uh, no, yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, it, it certainly like where well, the environment that I'm in makes a difference, right? So if I'm working in the practice, then then you know, and people are coming to see me for talk therapy, then that's obviously what I'm doing. Um, but if I'm going and you know working as a as a reviewer or going and working in, as a consultant in a school or something like that, then it's much much more clear. But I think having both experiences have been kind of nice. I mean, for me, it's been really nice too because I remember I don't hear this as much now, um, but years ago I remember being in team meetings and it was wait you, this person's diagnosed with autism, you know he can't be sad too, wait. Or, or, you know, he can't be anxious. That's just, that's just, you know, we, we, we only have one thing to talk about here. Right. And our focus might be on, quote unquote, remediating the core deficits related to a diagnosis of autism, right? That might be the focus of your intervention. But I think part of being a psychologist also allowed me to say, yeah, but just like I'm a whole person, like this person that I'm working with is a whole person too. And they're not, you know, we're not going to be able to parcel out some of this. We do need to kind of see it, it, how is this integrated and, and how might this person's feelings exacerbate maybe some of the things that we're working on. Uh, and, and that might make us a more effective clinician. Do you feel like you have a benefit, the fact that you're both? 
do you feel like it's it's helped your practice? Or like, for example, I always think I'm like, wow, being a special ed teacher and a BCBA is the best combo ever. You know, you need both. Do you feel like it's helped your practice a lot? For me, definitely. And, you know, I think just because that's how I was also trained and, and the, the education that I got, I, I don't know another way. Um, you know, my, I talk about this a lot, but my, my doctoral, my doctoral psych program didn't really have a lot about behavior analysis. I mean, it was like, Oh, Watson. And then, you know, move, move, you know, that was kind of the, what we got and didn't really have a lot about autism either. I mean, we had our child psych course and, and they would say, okay, there's these, the, you know, disorders commonly, commonly diagnosing ch in childhood and, and autism would get lumped into, you know, all the others that are in the DSM in that same chapter. Um, but unless you wanted to seek out more, more knowledge or more information, at least within that program, it really wasn't the main focus. Um, and I think I was lucky in that some of the work experiences that I got while I was in that program kind of led me down this other path of, of kind of expanding my behavior analytic knowledge and experience and working with different populations and, and then also applying behavior analysis toward different populations. But I think because maybe I learned them separately, I, I, often kind of think in kind of separate than together or together than separate. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, that's, that's been helpful for me. So I want to ask um, kind of like, when was a moment where you're like, I just love ethics so much. Like it is just my jam. I want to teach it. I want to write a book on it. Like, yeah. Like when's my moment coming? <laughs> like I'm waiting for my moment. <laughs> If it's a weird thing to like. Yes. To, and I remember I was at, oh man, I was at a, a conference a couple of years ago and you know how they have like the scooters that you can, um, like the bird scooters and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my former students was at the conference and they sought me out and they were like, you know, I really wanted to tell you about this, but someone left the live scooter and I rode it the rest of the way and I feel really bad. I was like, <laughs> why are you telling me about this? And they were like, well, you know, I took your class in ethics and I just felt like I needed to tell you. And I was like, no, no, please don't tell me about that kind of stuff. I don't want to know. <laughs> and then I was like, man, I'm just like, I'm, I'm the, uh, the narc on everything, I guess. But um, the buzzkill. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I never really liked learning about ethics in, in my programs, uh, you know, not to kind of speak bad about the programs that I went to, um, but I thought it was boring. It was, you know, and even studying for my exams, I, you know, I got, I, that was kind of the thing that I felt most comfortable with actually thinking back, but I never really liked learning about ethics and psychology or ethics and behavior analysis. It wasn't, it wasn't like fun or interesting, um, but I started getting, getting into it more, which is maybe weird, but I started when I had to teach it because I was, I was asked to kind of teach an ethics course and I felt comfortable enough teaching it, but I also knew, oh, I don't want it to be the class that everyone's like, well, I have to take it. Um, and I don't want to sit up there for two or three hours, just reading a book to people that, you know, could have certainly done that without me there. Um, so I looked at, well, what are the things that now that I'm practicing that I found helped me to understand ethics a little bit more or understand the ethical practice of behavior analysis versus I think those are two different things, right? Like learning about ethics and then understanding the ethical practice. So that's when I started thinking about, well, let's, let's learn the code and then let's put it into what I call human speak, right? So it's like, let's put it into real world language, how we would explain it if we were talking to, you know, friends. Uh, and then let's try to apply it to the situations that we, that we find on a daily basis or that we've heard about, or maybe even those horror stories like, oh my gosh, can you believe that this happened? Because that's, a lot of how some of the code happened, like all these things we talk about in the code now, oh, this would never happen. It's like, well, 
why do you think it got into the code? A, a lot of it's there because someone was doing this and doing it enough that we had to write it down to tell you not to. So you um, think someone was t like drinking so much water from someone's house? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the water. Yeah, it was, they were just, you know, all the bottles were going everywhere. There was, <laughs> and they were like, our dehydrated. water bill is so high. This is the thirstiest BCBA we've ever seen. BCBA keeps using all our toilet paper and they're always in our bathroom. <laughs> and we're have a bathroom Speaking of which, when you're a clinical psychologist, and you're sitting on your couch wearing your circular bifocals. <laughs> Are you with your elbow patches? Yeah, with your elbow patches. Combing my beard. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Are would you take a glass of water? <laughs> <laughs> would I take a glass of water from the client? Um, in your office, it'd be weird. In, yeah, in but my office, that would be a lot. What if weirder. someone brought you a gift? Like this is Fiji water, okay? Like oh well, that is you know it's it's the Earth's best water. Um, <laughs> you know, well, the code, the APA code is pretty similar. It's, it's actually not as strict as the BACB code, but it's pretty similar in that, you know, you're really not supposed to take gifts. So dependent on what your definition of a gift is, then, you know, the reciprocation of it, that's, you know, it's, it's the, the quote unquote right answer, which I hate saying, cause I always say that there's no right answer is you probably shouldn't take it. I mean, if, if someone's coming into my office, it's kind of easier, I think, as a psychologist, because, you know, when I'm, when I'm practicing as a psychologist, I'll have my office or, or and, and they'll come to my space. They do their, you know, hour of talking about the specific thing that why they're supposed to be there. And then they And leave. like, if they're bringing you water, it's like creepy. Yeah, well, then we can talk about why are you bringing this water? You know, tell me about your mother. Did she bring everybody water? Um, and so <laughs> always goes back to the mother. It always goes back to the mother. Um, so, so one of the things I think that's a lot safer. I mean, there's certainly kind of boundary issues that come with being a psychologist because you're talking about all these personal things. But one of the per nice protections that the nice, warm, cozy blanket that you have in in that field that we don't get as much as behavior analysts is that separation, right? Like. Even, you know, if you're going into someone's house, you're on their turf now, you've invaded their space. And it's important to realize how different that might be for them and how even if you're there for your role and you're, you're associated with your position and you're there to kind of perform your task and then leave, you're now seeing their house, you're seeing it clean, you're seeing it messy, you're maybe running and chasing after a kid into their bedroom or like having to help, you know, clean up their bathroom or whatever it is. There's a whole kind of boundary diffusion that happens there that if you kind of just say, but I'm, I'm the professional, it doesn't matter. You're going to miss so much, so many potential problems, but also a lot of opportunity too for, for building that relationship in an effective way. Also due to the amount of hours that yep. you are, Mm -hmm. uh, with clients, you know, someone might be able to, you know, hold it in for an hour or something, whatever it is you say. But when you're in these houses, I mean, I always tell the story about one of the moms that I found out was a porn star that I worked with. Because uh, like she was sending out mail and it was her underwear. And I always bring this story up because you don't mean to see these things. Like I mm -hmm. never thought that I'd mean to like, and, and that literally, as soon as she opened that to me, it was like this whole can of worms opened. Like it was like mm -hmm. this comfort was here. And now I knew she was in love with her psychologist and I knew this and, and I was just like, oh my gosh. And well, so, like, that's why these different laws are there. You know, some of them seem crazy. Exactly. I'm like, whatever, it's water. But I, I mean, I've been there to experience why if you give someone a glass of water, they'll ask for a anything. Like if you give a mouse a cookie, they'll start spilling more and more. Yeah, you know, and it seems so silly because really it is, 
you know, I always talk about, you know, just like we do for behaviors, there's the topography of the behavior and then there's the function of the behavior. So, you know, it's the same thing with ethics. There's the topography of the behavior, which is, you know, them, you know, extending their arm and handing you the glass of water and then you accepting it, right? But the function of it for most people in most, you know, 99.99% of circumstances, it's they're trying to be polite or you're, you know, they know that you're there to help their family. So they want to, you know, it's, or it's a common social thing that you do, or you keep coughing and they're sick of hearing you cough and they want you to have some water. So you be quiet, whatever it is. But, you know, I, I, I tell, I tell this one story about um, a staff member who I worked with who, you know, every day parent would give them a bottle of water. And it's oh, so silly talking about water. It always comes back to, you know, gifts with, with ethics, but it's like the main thing that everyone has a challenge with. Um, and, you know, every day that the staff member would come in, they'd accept the bottle of water from the family, not really thinking anything of it. Um, and then one day, I was a supervisor case, one day, a couple months in, the parent was like, you know, I think I want this person off the case. And, and you know, we were like, well, what's, you know, what's going on? We try to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, after a lot of discussion, this wasn't the only reason, but they were like, you know, whenever he comes here, he's, you know, getting, you know, a bottle of water. And I find myself like the night before thinking to myself, oh crap, did I go to the store? Do I need to run out? I don't have any water for this person. And it was like such a ridiculous thing, right? But this was what was important to this family to make sure because the expectation had been set. Um, they, they wanted to make sure that the staff member was comfortable coming into the home, but it became this like point of contention then where it was like, and this person just keeps taking my water and I hate them, right? <laughs> and it was like, so it, like the water is so silly because it's like Earth's most abundant <laughs> natural resource, right? And it really, but it's not about the glass of water. It's about the interaction and what it, what it represents. So, you know, one of the things I think that's really become and why I like ethics kind of going back to one of the things that I like about ethics is that there really is, you know, for the longest time, even when I learned about ethics, it was, here's the code, just learn it, right? And then these are things that exist to kind of guide you. Here's your laws, just learn them, right? Don't kill people, don't jaywalk, you know, don't accept gifts, right? But we can think about ethics in such a cooler and more interesting way of as behavior analysts. So how do we apply behavior analytic principles to ethical or unethical behavior? And when we do that, just like we do with the regular old behaviors, it's got to be individualized, right? So under certain contexts and situations, some behaviors are more likely to occur and others, uh, others are not. In some circumstances and situations, some behaviors are going to be problematic and maybe not a violation of the code, but the code is really there to kind of give you a heads up of, hey, this path might be, might be best or this path might not be. Um, and when you, if we think about it from a functional and, and behavior analytic perspective, then there's so much more stuff that we can do with the work that we, that we, that we conduct. So I was listening to um, Amanda Kelly on the Scoops podcast about ethics, and mm -hmm. she said it like ex kind of exactly like you did, like, right? Like she would go to this uh, client's house and she would be, um, she'd after worked like an eight hour day. It was her last stop. She had driven an hour and the mom offered her like an iced coffee because she like looked like, you know, she could use one. And she's like, that was fine. I was like, sure. Thanks. Like I could use one. I'm exhausted. I'm yawning. Like didn't say that to the mom, but she's like over time, you know, it just became like a habit that she'd offer me a nice coffee. And then she's like, there was one time that she was running late. Amanda was running late and she was like, oh, like 
I could stop, but no, the mom will definitely have an iced coffee for me. And I guess she did. The mom didn't have one. And Amanda checked herself and was like, oh shit, I'm now expecting this from mm-hmm. this mother. Right. Like now that's affecting maybe my treatment for that kid. Like, and just like, it, it is, it's like in the beginning, it's just one thing. But if you just start thinking about again, you know, a parent could, then you have to think of like the cultural um, you know, when someone offers you maybe a food in their culture and you don't take it, it's, you know, what's the risk or the benefit or like, um, the consequence you need to look at how much more harmful would this be to this parent? Um, I love that function thing. I never heard it described yeah, as that. that. Like, like, because I, I have never had the words for it. You know, people will be like, well, can I take a picture that a kid drew for me in my head? I want to be like, well, yeah. Like, what was the function of it? Like them, like feeling creative and like giving it to you, you know, like, or was it because like, they want more more hours. Yeah, this is a Picasso <laughs> picture right. that the kid made. And now they know if they give you this billion dollar portrait the kid made, you're gonna, you know, <laughs> give them more attention. Yeah. It's yeah, I mean, it's it's just that that was one of the like the aha moments that I had. And I didn't really have it until I started practicing and teaching at the same time, because that's when I really started thinking that this is you know, good ethical practice is good clinical practice, good clinical practice is good ethical practice. So trying to separate one out of the other, it's going to be ineffective in both ways, right? So if we think about just like our behavior is going to be influenced by our environment and our client's behaviors or customer's behavior is going to be influenced by theirs, you know, we we have, this is our great, this is what we're good at. This is our bread and butter to think about, you know, what's influencing the initial display of these behaviors and what's keeping it going. Mm -hmm. And thinking about it, you know, from an ABC and C to behavior consequence perspective, it doesn't, we, we know it doesn't end at the C, right? It starts a whole new chain. So if you accept the water or take the drawing from the kid or, you know, expect the iced coffee or, you know, go and go on, you know, go to the bar or whatever it is with the client's parent uh, or say, no, I'm not going to, well then what's going to be the potential occurrence that happens after that and after that, and how do you need to prepare for it? Cause then that's really helps you to be a better clinician. This, if I'm prepared for this, I can deal with it, right? So what could be the repercussions, good or bad, from this? If I, if I don't accept this offer of food from this family, you know, yes, I'm keeping in line with the code. So from an ethical perspective, I'm doing the quote unquote right thing, but how might this then influence my relationship with the family? And is that true, right? Is it really, or is it just gonna make me uncomfortable? Is it, is it something that we can work about or is it something that like, this is going to be a stopping point? And also like thinking of this, like, okay, the, and I'm just thinking of, this just came to my head, you know, the, the extreme too, like the magnitude of whatever there it is. Say maybe you go to the parent's house and they just cooked cookies, right? They're already cooked. They didn't have to like do any work. They already done it for themselves and they offer you one versus you coming in and being like, oh, I would love to make you something so that you give my child better treatment. So I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to purchase this stuff and I'm going to cook you this five-star meal. And like, you have to stick around with me and have wine after or something like that. Like putting things into like the context of okay, well, what do they really like? And that's what Amanda was saying too. She's like, she already had the iced coffee made, you know, when I went there. So I figured like, she didn't have to go out of her way. She already made it for herself. Um, you know, and it, I, when I thought of that, I'm like, that's so true. And you can really see that. You I know, love, when I, I literally, Casey, when you say that example, that was like, so me with a client. It was like a Starbucks every time I went. And, See, and that's different than like them having homemade iced coffee. That's like, you know, they didn't have to spend know, money. No, on. but I mean, all this stuff, I mean, a lot of it was more when I was an RBT and I guess I didn't really know, but it's just, 
I think ethics codes are made for someone like me. There's something with my face <laughs> that tells tells people like, tell me every single thing about you. Like someone will tell me like the biggest insecurity, like how they can't perform in sex within like three minutes of meeting me. I'm not kidding. Like, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so I think that these ethical codes are really like an antecedent intervention mm -hmm, mm -hmm. before allowing it to get there. Because, you know, a lot of things I'd be like, well, why are they telling me all this? Like, I'm really friendly. I'm really open. And so I guess it was like, I'm like an SD for like, tell me anything. And, and if you don't set those boundaries clear yeah. in the beginning, it's way harder to set them after. Right. And, and I think I think that's a good a good way to think. That's how I always try to think about the code is as an antecedent versus as a consequence. Right. Because I think everyone, you know, and this happens with laws, this happens in, in, in the APA code, too, is that, you know, you think about implementation or understanding of the code when someone messed up. Right. And now it's like, oh, which code did you violate? Now we have to do corrective action and, and, you know, or, you know, oh, I'm in this really, really precarious ethical situation or, you know, feel something feels weird or uncomfortable. Let me go consult the code. And it's, it's a, that's a great use of it, too. That's like one of the nice things about it. But if you use it as kind of, hey, this is going to help me to kind of guide my behaviors, my interactions is going to help me to kind of be a better clinician. And, you know, around the holidays, people are going to start bringing up bringing up gifts. You, you can use it as kind of a way of preparing for these likely circumstances and situations so that when they inevitably come up, you're good to go, or you're just, you know, just a better, better prepared clinician just overall, and hopefully nothing does come up. So, yeah, let's ask him a couple questions from our listeners. Okay. All right. As we're let's getting go. to the end of this, what would Dr. Darren Sush do. W W D D D D. Oh, Doctor Darren. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> SD. D D S do. All right. All right. So what go ahead. What's the one of the ones that we got? All right. Someone asked the question. I don't know these might be kind of difficult because they're not specific, but it says when it comes to dual relationships slash conflict of interest, when do you report it? And who do you report it to, the agency, or you resolve it between the parents yourself? This is the first question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one. I think that my, my non-answer, which is, I don't mean it to be a non-answer, would be, I think it kind of depends. I, I mean, it depends on what the relationship is, what's kind of going on, and, and also I think your position, right? So if you are the owner of the company and you're finding yourself in a situation where it's, Oof, this is, I'm getting, you know, this client tends to call me up a lot more, or I know them because, you know, we're both work in the community together, but I'm the only agency in town, um, or, or whatever it is, you know, your, your response to that might be a little bit different than I would say, might maybe a recommendation to like the RBT, who's, who's, you know, getting invited out or, or got like the Facebook friend request from, uh, from the, from the parent or something like that. Um, you know, in, in that case, then I would say you probably don't, try to solve it on your own maybe go to go to you know the your supervisors or the other people in in your office if, if that's possible for suggestions thoughts and advice or even just kind of like a check hey here's what i'm thinking has anybody in this been in this circumstance before and i think that goes to back to like that imposter syndrome thing of like we don't want to ask because you don't want to get in trouble maybe you did something that might have kind of led things along or you just you know you feel like you should be able to take care of it 
but you don't know, maybe maybe four other RBTs are having that same question and everyone's kind of shoving it under, under the rug. Um, so being able to discuss and get feedback can be, can be really helpful. Um, but, but I think, I mean, you know, I'm, I don't represent the BACP in any way. I don't work for them. And so, so for me to say kind of, here's what you should do in, in these circumstances, that's, that's a tough one. Um, but I think if you're finding yourself in, in like a multiple relationship, that you, the first question to ask is, well, how is this influencing my, my decision making? Am I noticing any changes? Kind of go back to, to what you've been doing for the past weeks and how that's compared to before. Are you, are you showing up a little bit early or finding yourself staying a little bit later? Or maybe the opposite of like, you're sitting in your car for the first 10 minutes of the session because you really just don't want to deal with it, which is, mm -hmm. you know, that's a good indication that maybe you don't when I have to interact with this family for whatever reason or this kid or you just don't trust yourself uh, in, in that situation not to put it all on the, on the families so I've so been there I'm like thinking back to when I was like an RBT I would like I was like dread because I just knew the second I went in there they were going to be like tell me all the you know issues but it went far beyond the client it'd be issues with their other ch children who I wasn't servicing or like their husband. I'm just like, Oh my God, stop. Like, I just didn't know how to be rude. I was like, it was just rough. So yeah, I've, I've definitely, and I'm sure a lot of people are, cause when you work in home, it is the most difficult. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I mean, I've done both and whoo in home gets, gets close real quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I was working with, with a family. This was a couple of years back. I was working with a family and I was working with the oldest sibling and there was a couple siblings and then this, the one just below, like the next youngest um, was, I mean, both of them were awesome kids. And, but you know, the second youngest kid always willing to jump in, always wanted to play. And I could, you could also see kind of like, Hey, how come, how come old, older sibling gets this special person? And yes, I, kinda want this special I think person. that's so common. Yeah. Um, and, and it was cool. Cause we, we were able to kind of, you know, when we did sibling play or like we were able to practice board games and you know, all the stuff that you'd want to have someone else there for, Mm -hmm. sibling was right there right on top of it and loved it but then it started to become a little bit of a challenge is that the more we would kind of integrate him in the more he would be involved in sessions even maybe during the times where maybe it wasn't the best mm -hmm. you know and where and 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 i had to really take a second and say like maybe i'm not doing what i you know it's, it's great to do the sibling play and it's a lot of awesome practice but is this then sacrificing some of this one-to-one -one time that really i need to be dedicating um, you know, so, and because of that, do we need to lay down maybe some ground rules and expectations for the parents a little bit more, um, and get back to kind of maybe where we started, which is, Hey, we're going to do, you know, from here to here where it's just the one client and then brother can come in or sister can come in and join and then go back again. And, you know, but if, if, if I kind of just was like, man, this kid's awesome. I want him around all the time and kind of let that go. And Hey, look at all these great sibling things that we get to work on. Then I probably would have missed probably some of the skill sets that, that the main, you know, the specific client needed to be working on. And you have to look at your own self, like, oh, is it just more reinforcing for your behavior yeah. to have the sibling there? Cause you're like, hey, this is fun. I'm like a response, I'm getting a response. <laughs> this sibling like is laughing at all my jokes, is responding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it made me feel cool. And who doesn't want it, you know, I was like, man, this is, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. And like, and then also, you know, it was so it was benefiting me. And then I, I could kind of couch it in that and look how great yeah. the older sibling's doing with all these other things. So it allowed me to kind of like, justify it a lot more until I finally said, oof, maybe, you know, oh, we didn't get to run this program today. Why didn't we get to run this program? Yeah. Because a sibling was with us the whole time or like, for the majority of the time. Yeah, that's so true. All right. Uh, let's see. I've, let's see, just uh, maybe one or two more. Um, 
Is it ethical to tell an ABA therapist or RBT in a different company who is having a hard time because of the lack of support and training to leave that company uh, and they are thinking of coming to the company where you work? Or should you promote them staying and working through issues again with supervisors and managers even after they've already tried to voice concerns and their needs one to two times and has met, been met with resistance? That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, just me right away. Like, I, if you're the BCBA and you maybe are friends with this RBT or something, like, yeah, absolutely, that's a conflict of interest. You're not going to influence their decision, right? Well, I think it's also defining, you know, in, at least in relation to the ethics code, it's defining what, what your role is to that person, mm -hmm. right? So if they're not your client, but they're just your friend, then you don't necessarily have an ethical responsibility to them. Uh, but if they are going to come work for you is, I think, what the point of it was. Like, then they might, if you like tell as your, them. As your employee? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah that could be, that could be an issue. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, and that's, that's, that's something that I would imagine comes up a bunch, even forgetting kind of the, the part where the, the old company's crummy. Um, mm -hmm. But just, you know, we make connections within this field all the time. And, and, and hopefully those connections turn into friendships and, and, you know, opportunities to collaborate and work together and stuff like that. And if you rise to that position of being either a supervisor or maybe even an owner, it makes sense to want to hire the people you trust. Yeah. But you also have to understand those people you trust, you have a relationship with them. And if you're going to have supervisory responsibilities over them, then that's something that you need to take into consideration. Um, you know, and if that means that um, you don't, you're not their direct supervisor, like there's a go-between to kind of act as a protector or, you know, if hopefully, if, you know, if they're not accruing their hours, it's maybe a little bit cleaner, but if they're working toward accruing their hours and you're their supervisor, well, then you're their buddy and their supervisor. And that's, that's, you know, it's, it's in the code because it gets, it can get messy real quick. You know, either you, you cut corners or it ruins the relationship or, you know, so, uh, trying to avoid that uh, as much as possible with with other with other strategies and resources might be uh, a, a better avenue. Yeah, I see that a lot. I live in a pretty small town, so like, you know, everyone kind of like goes between agencies or whatever it may be. Or you know, maybe my professor was the owner of this agency, and um, it's uh, yeah, I've definitely seen it a lot. And people move around all the time in this field. It seems that there's like. Oh, I've you know worked here for a little while and move on to this one and then this one and I mean it's the complete opposite of me. I work at places for like fifteen years, but <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> um, all right, do you have anything else, Liat, or what do you think? I think all of this stuff is so important and really good to talk about. And I really would encourage any of our students to even talking about it and saying it out loud, it does require you to think in a different way. Because I remember when I took the BCBA exam, when I left there, back when you had to wait a few months to get your results. Mm. Or how long mm -hmm. was it, a month? No, it was like three months. I literally Four was gonna say, or something. I remember it being a while, it felt like a long time, whatever yeah. it was. I don't yeah. know, all I know is it was not immediate reinforcement, let's put it that way, it was very <laughs> delayed. Um, but I remember coming up the test and being like, oh my God, I failed because of ethics. And because I remember like I read through my ethics stuff, I thought I knew it and I did pass, but I thought that I didn't. But it's because when you just read it at, and you're not applying it to anything that you're doing or situations, you're just reading code, you're like, okay, okay, okay. 
But it's until like you actually so even talking about it, yeah. yeah, even a, a talking about it today, even talking about the glass of water from a functional versus a um, topographical. topographical, right, perspective really made sense to me. Even though I've talked about this a million times, I think I've asked everyone about the glass of water. I love being like, oh, you're a BCBA, would you take a glass of water or not, you know? <laughs> uh, but But just talking about it really, I think, will help a lot of students when studying or when if you're a BCPA and trying to apply this to your real life, talk about it with someone because it is it is dry just to read rules. But when you actually yeah. talk about it, how it applies, it's it's actually really interesting to be like, well, what would we do here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that I try to do in the book is kind of when you're faced with a situation, it's, you know, how to think of it as a behavior analyst, as an ethical behavior analyst, but as a behavior analyst that, practice, that practices ethically, right? So you're applying your skill set of understanding the context and, and uh, that, that leads to and, and promotes and then maintains behaviors. Those behaviors we're just talking about are potentially ethically challenging situations. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, you know, when you hear about a circumstance, when you hear about a situation, well, what codes apply here? Not necessarily what codes are violated. I think that's important too, but what codes apply here? Why do I think that they apply? what might have led to this situation, right? So doing kind of a, a little of a functional behavior assessment kind of for yourself, what might have led to this circumstance that got me in the mess that I'm in right now or that I feel like I'm in? Yeah. And then if I did nothing, what would happen? Like, would it just pay, play out or, or, you know, would it, would we be okay? Or if I did, you know, what kind of should be my next chosen action that's going to help to fix this? And then what do I need to keep in mind after that? Right? Because once you're done, you're never done. Because now you've set up a different chain of events that you need to think about. And you know, you're just setting yourself up for more success if you keep thinking about how this is gonna how this is gonna play out. Um, and then even from the other way, like if you're reading the code and you're trying to, you know, practicing for the exam or you're in a class or whatever, if you're reading the code, yeah, it's great if you can memorize it, but you know, your learning's gonna be that much more established and, and probably a lot more entertaining if you then try to think about like well, what does this mean like let's what what kind of circumstance is this why was this one written like why was this even included in the code in the first place and how does it apply to what i'm doing right now um and and i think that kind of breathes some light into into the code in and of itself and also kind of helps you to understand it a lot better and i love something that you said earlier um like the best option actually might not be ideal, but being okay with that. Yeah. That, yeah. Especially on the exam, right? Like yeah. especially on the, I remember taking the, you know, that was the whole thing, especially with the ethics section is that there's not, it's not like a definition. So define positive, you know, that doesn't happen on the yeah. ethics section too much. It's usually choose the best of these crappy answers and which one <laughs> is the next thing you should do. Mm -hmm. um, and feeling when you're taking the test, feeling comfortable to say, okay, this might not be the ideal. But given these choices, this is the this is what we can do that's going to be the best for this individual based on the code or based on the description. And usually, and you all would know better than I, but usually the test isn't trying to trick you. So if you're thinking that it's, you know, trying to trying to trip you up, then try read, read the question again, because probably the information is there and, and maybe you're just a little worried about it. And that's why you think they're trying to trick you. Or you think it's too easy of an answer, like yeah. right? when I, what I've seen with ethics, right? Where I'm like, well, oh, but oh, no way they wouldn't make it. No, they oh, wouldn't make it that easy that you just need consent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think people trip themselves up a lot with the ethics part of the exam with that. 
thinking oh man because the, the exam is super hard and a lot of the questions do try to trick you but mm -hmm. when i've seen like most of the ethics you know just scenarios and stuff is it is pretty... the best pick the best answer mm -hmm. for those mm -hmm. because or what is the first thing you should do right, right. yeah oh, no, they, what is the first what was the last thing you should do before you actually contact the bacb and it's a lot of those like specific questions about where in the process and guys we're no we don't know anything about the exam that's no i don't know about. but yeah no but i'm saying in general as to i mean that's how exams are written right they try to trick you to be specific to mm -hmm. look at certain stimuli that should be controlling your response Absolutely. anyways guys this book that uh dr darren has written this workbook of ethical case scenarios and applied behavior analysis we will put it in the show notes mm -hmm. it is awesome it has a lot of modern examples that you will be like oh i didn't even realize that that happens at my work and that is an ethical <laughs> problem or oh my god i was the person always taking the coffee so go check this book out i believe you could get it on amazon yep that's right is that is that the best place or the only place yeah, well, uh, Amazon, um, and I think Elsevier has it where you can get it directly from there, but but Amazon's pretty good too, and that's usually, you know, pretty quick. Low response effort, guys. Go to Amazon. Go. Prime um, that. Yeah, help them. <laughs> help them get more business. All right, guys, but Darren, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Darren, you're awesome. Thank you so much Thanks. for coming on today. I'm glad this finally worked out. Yeah, me too. Time flew by. Wow. <laughs> Who knew ethics could be fun, right? <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. As always, love ya. Mean it. Hey, guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Cause guess what? We don't know shit with that, but we have Alan at pretty easy podcast who help us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit. When we don't even know what he's doing, he sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work, it doesn't matter. He provides a complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need super. him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him. And he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 